Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. The last episode was an AMA, which uh, I think got somewhat overshadowed by the first 20 minutes where I responded to all the vaccine hesitancy stuff. Anyway, those of you who listened to the whole thing seem to enjoy it, so um, I will do more AMAs going forward. It had been a long time. And generally use that forum to respond to more topical stuff. Well, today's podcast is really on the state of the world entirely, mostly through an economic lens, but also political, because today I'm speaking with Dambisa Moyo. Dambisa is a prize winning author of several bestsellers The Edge of Chaos, Winner Take All. Dead Aid. Her most recent book is How Boards Work. She is an economist trained at Oxford. Uh, She also has a master's degree from Harvard, from the John F. Kennedy School of Government. I think she has an MBA as well. Time Magazine has named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. She's worked for the World Bank and Goldman Sachs and serves on a variety of corporate boards. And she regularly contributes to the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Anyway, as you'll hear, Dembisa gives me an education on many topics. We discuss public goods, economic growth, capitalism, American economic history, bad public policy choices, different forms of inequality, tax avoidance among the wealthy, government inefficiency, current problems with democracy the breakdown of trust in our institutions, failures of transparency, voter participation, the future of automation, identity politics, the reality of racism in America. And then we have a very long discussion about affirmative action and its problems, which I found very interesting. And we also talk about the rise of China and what that means for America. Anyway, I love this conversation, and I hope you do as well. And now I bring you Dambisa Moyo. I am here with Dambisa Moyo. Dambisa, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So um, you have one of these ridiculous CVs. It's just, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's quite amazing who you are on paper. And so I want to get into that. But before we summarize your your academic and intellectual and professional background, give us your your origin story. You you came from, you were born in in Zambia. What was your upbringing like? So you're right. I was born in Zambia. Um, I think the old timers might recognize it as northern Rhodesia. Mm. Um, The country became independent in 1964. Um, Some high-level statistics, it is a copper exporter, about 97% of exports, maybe a little lower now, come from come from copper exports. Um, we are a former British colony, so English is the official language. I was uh, born and raised in Zambia, and uh, you know it's it's changed so much even in in my lifetime. Um, I'm 52 years old now, but the interesting thing is that in uh, the the rules in basically the law of the land. In, uh, in Zambia was that Blacks were not issued birth certificates until uh, 1973. Mm. 
and it was a you know a, a sort of artifact of the colonial era. So to this day, um, I have no uh, birth certificate, but I do have an affidavit which is very clearly uh, states that what I just said, which is that birth certificates were not issued to um, to Black Africans. And so it's been a wild ride. What I, I was you know my formative years were in Africa, in Zambia, and uh, you know primary, secondary, and university. We had a coup in 1991 where there was an attempted overthrow of the government. Um, but before that. We had been in a one-party state, which was uh, run by a man who just died a few weeks ago, Kenneth Kaunda. Mm. And um, basically, it was a relatively peaceful existence. Uh, we were very much on the front lines of the struggle for independence for the African region, uh, particularly sub- sub-Saharan, excuse me, Southern Africa, South Africa, etc. So a lot of the ANC freedom fighters, we actually lived in Zambia. And uh, President Mandela, upon his release, uh, the first country he visited was Zambia mm. to basically acknowledge that. So, you know, it's in, in terms of my specific upbringing, I, I'm the first child um, and first daughter of two people who were born and raised in rural Africa from two different tribes, two different parts of the country. But they uh, met and married at university. In They were two of the first 11 Black graduates allowed to go to university in Zambia. Mm. Um, and so uh, my parents, I mean, if you think about it, 11 Blacks in the class and two of them were my parents. Right. Uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a remarkable story. So, uh, you know, 20 years later, I went back to that same university to start my own uh, university career. But, you know, on the whole, very fortunate in the, in the sense that my parents were born in poor uh, rural Africa, uh, had an opportunity to get an education. And that really put the basis in play for myself and my siblings to get an education and uh, to be here today in, in just, uh, you know, just over 50 years. Quite amazing to be on the Sam Harris uh, podcast. <laughs> well, this is not your crowning achievement, as we will, uh, we will detail in a second. <laughs> so how do you how do you summarize your your intellectual and, and academic background at this point. What, what are you doing? I, I know you serve on several boards. Give us a, a snapshot of where you're placed in the world. Yeah. So my PhD is in economics from Oxford University. And so I, I guess I view myself first and foremost as a, a macroeconomist. Um, I nevertheless um, have spent about 10 years on uh, working at Goldman Sachs on Wall Street, and then another almost 10 years um, on the board of uh, a bank, Barclays Bank, one of the large global sort of important, significant institutions in the banking industry globally. And so in that respect, I feel like I was sort of born and raised in finance. Um, And uh, although I've subsequently spent a lot of time serving on the boards of, of large global and complex organizations, such as Chevron and energy, mining companies, you know, industrial companies like 3M who are making the masks and the ventilators during the COVID pandemic, but also fast moving consumer goods as well as technology companies. So it's been quite a varied experience over the last decade in which I've sort of evolved from being specifically an an economist working in the area of finance into now much more of a jack of of all trades in, in terms of thinking about policy issues, thinking about how public policy as well as the private sector think about allocating capital and navigating through challenging times. Mm. So you and I recently met at a dinner party, and uh, I've referenced this gathering a couple of times on the podcast without naming any of the participants. 
Uh, I guess I've just outed you as a as a member of this <laughs> star chamber. So for better or worse, but you know the the conversation we had there was pretty instructive for me because I, I it was a remarkable snapshot of the thinking of some very powerful connected people about mm-hmm. this trend we're seeing, you know, especially in American public life around a very illiberal activist culture capturing our institutions. And I, I'm going to want to talk to you about that, but I think let's save mm-hmm. that to the end of our conversation, because right? there's, there's so much more uh, to um, explore given your expertise. So I, let, let's start with um, big picture concerns around the global trends that most concern you at this point. I mean, wait, let's maybe take the, the economic side first. Mm-hmm. What does global economic growth look like now? And, and how do you see that relating with any geopolitical concerns we might have? You know, the, the rise in populism, the weakening of institutions, the weakening of America in particular. I, you know, I, I want to cover all of this. So um, yeah. give me your view of the world from 30,000 yeah. feet. So, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, as an economist, I'm deeply concerned about the question of economic growth. Economic growth is is critically important because it really does help us solve macroeconomic problems such as living standards, improving people's living standards over time. But it also helps fund public goods like education, national security, infrastructure. Healthcare, although I know in America, healthcare mm-hmm. is a question of whether it's a public good. I, also, actually, Dambisa, yeah. would you, yeah. uh, you just listed a few, but would, would you define what you mean by a public good? Sure. So a public good, I mean, the, 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 to me, the most basic and sort of straightforward way of thinking about it, it's something that we all benefit from, but no one of us pays for. So something like a road, you and I can use the same road, but we didn't pay for it. We may have contributed to it through our taxes, but we didn't pay the full freight for that. And it's similarly, if you think about things like education or national security, big, big, expensive programs that government seeks to undertake to protect, but also to support an economy and a society, somebody has to pay for that. And, uh, and really, it's through, partly through taxation, but also through government borrowing that public goods tend to be funded. So my point is that in order to have a tax base, your economy needs to be growing. The pie has to be expanding so that we can tax and use that uh, money to fund these public goods, education, healthcare, infrastructure, national security. And of course, to my mind, um, we're seeing that list expand when you have things like climate change, um, which again is is a public risk in some sense, because uh, we all, not, not one of us is responsible for the full onslaught of the, of the challenge that we're dealing with, but the truth is we've all somehow contributed to it. It's sort of, it's sort of a negative externality. Mm. So that's, that's how I think about growth. And look, here's the uh, rule of thumb with respect to growth. In order for a country to double per capita income, so to double the income of uh, the average person in one generation, and the generation's about 25 years, you need the economy to be growing by 3% per year. Mm-hmm. And even before COVID hit, we were already seeing many economies, large, small, developed, developing, you know, democratic and non-democratic, already struggling to make that 3% number. 
So just to give you some examples, Germany in the fourth quarter of 2019 had 0% growth. Um, The UK was at around 1.2 to 1.4. And then you have very large emerging markets, like economies like Brazil, Argentina, South Africa, Russia, that since the financial crisis have, have struggled to get beyond 2%. So really, snapshot was already pretty bad. We were already mm. worried about growth. We were worried that public policy had become quite impotent. By that, I mean, governments had already had enormous amounts of debt on their balance sheets, but not just government, households, corporations, as well as, uh, as, well as, as, as how, uh, student loans, auto loans were all over a trillion dollars. And then with respect to monetary policy, we know that after the financial crisis of 2008, interest rates have been at historical lows. In fact, they're negative rates in Europe as well as, uh, as Japan. So very, very challenged situation in terms of slow growth, challenged situation in terms of public policy's ability to effect change. And then if I may, Sam, just add on one additional thing that was causing so many challenges for us and continues to do so. Um, is a confluence of factors that was creating a greater drag on economic growth. Things like climate change, issues around demographic shifts. There are going to be 11 billion of us on the planet. India is adding a million people a month to the mm. populate to her population. We were already worried about technology and the risk of a jobless underclass. Already deep concerns around uh, productivity decline. So the ability for people to contribute to GDP was stalling. So all of this happened before COVID. Um, mm. And now we then end up with COVID, which I would argue has actually been catalytic and making things much more precarious than uh, in terms of our ability to generate growth and to solve these problems. And in fact, has, has sort of hastened a lot of the challenges that uh, we, we've been worried about in economics. I think that this is um, the basis of what you just said could be counterintuitive for many people. So to make a point of contact with what we'll talk about later, this uh, culture of activism, Mm -hmm. there's a fundamental skepticism around capitalism itself being a a salvageable system Mm -hmm. for improving the the well-being of humanity. And producing wealth is obviously part of that picture. But in everything you just said, you have taken for granted a kind of imperative for growth that I think many people, certainly younger people who are skeptical about capitalism as a system, would find counterintuitive. I mean, it just sounds like the the global economy is just this vast Ponzi scheme, which has has the mechanics of its own failure built into it. Why is there Mm -hmm. this growth imperative? Why is growth even necessary? And and how do you view this, this fundamental skepticism around basing our economy on capitalism in the first place? So that is a wonderful question. And I think that, unfortunately, our public policymakers have not done a good job of articulating why growth matters. But even more than that, they've not done a good job of really highlighting the times and places where we've made mistakes, of which have been many. And I'll come to those in a moment. I should say, just to telegraph, you know, ahead of time, you know, the vast majority of the problems that we're dealing with in terms of public policy and weakness in the economy have really very little to do with China. But mm-hmm. China, for example, has become a boogeyman. And what it means is that we're not really doing the hard work that's necessary for an economy to thrive and survive over the long term. 
But, you know, your, your question is a very fair one. You know, why, why is it the case that somebody like myself continues to speak up about growth? Um, and a lot of that has to do with having lived, worked, and traveled to over 80 countries, developed and developing, as, as, you, as we just, uh, I highlighted, but also economies that have chosen other paths. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that a system that allocates capital and resources, which by and large tend to be scarce, in a way that is driven by innovation, driven by uh, not cronyism, is the system we ought to aspire for, aspire to, and capitalism is really based on that. Now, just to be absolutely clear, the type of capitalism that we have practiced has tended to pursue shortcuts, and we can come to that. So governments reaching for more amount of debt, um, which, you know, short term looked attractive, tax breaks, et cetera, but longer term were not investing in infrastructure or education or future generations. But also, it's important to say that the, the lack of long term thinking has led us to reach both in terms of corporations, but also governments to, for short-term solutions that don't fully reflect the trade-offs and the challenges of delivering economic growth at scale for many companies and countries. So if I may just pick at this a little bit more, sure. um, and then I'll, I'll send it back to you. So China was the largest economy in the world um, in GDP terms in 1820. And they made a number of catastrophic policy errors that really cost them. Today, China is the second largest economy in GDP terms, but it still remains one of the poorest economies in the world in terms of a per capita income basis, so on average. In fact, Mm. it's poorer than many countries in South America and Africa. So here you have from 1820 to to, uh, to 2021, where we are today, and they made enormous policy mistakes. The U.S. itself has made policy mistakes uh, in the era post the Gilded Age. So from the 1870 to 1900, you see a lot of economic growth, a lot of exchange and trade and movement of capital, movement of people. So globalization, as we know it today, we saw a lot of the the rise of corporations, relatively laissez-faire government. But that era of the Gilded Age was punctured by a number of things, Spanish flu, a war, and the financial crisis. And what subsequently happened was progressive politics, very similar to the type of progressive politics that we're hearing about today. People wanted bigger government as an arbiter of capital and labor. People wanted to see smaller corporations. They wanted them broken up, more antitrust, less globalization. And I'll tell you now, that left the United States in an economic malaise for 25 years. From 1930 to 1954, you had low growth, high unemployment. And if you look at just the Dow Jones Industrial Index as as one indicator, in 1929, it peaked at 381 points. The next time they saw 381 points was in 1954. Hmm. So you saw a stalled economy. And it's true that we had a breakdown of globalization. So we had Smoot-Hawley policies that were very aggressively anti-foreign goods and and services coming into the U.S., very aggressive aggressive anti-immigrant stance, which we're hearing again now. Um, You know, just to give you some numbers, 
in the Gilded Age, that 1870 to 1900, the, uh, the, the percentage of American foreign-born Americans was around 13%. That number went down to 6% in this malaise or progressive period I'm talking about. Mm. It, is, it is true that government became bigger. We have a lot of the welfare programs in the United States, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, really built up in that period uh, of 25 years. But, the, but if you look at unemployment rates, economic growth, et cetera, it actually is a period of, uh, of real regression, I would argue, in the United States. So then what, what happened in the 50s to turn it around? Well, it's funny you ask because, uh, and I hope this doesn't repeat itself, but what you had was a couple of things. First of all, you had a war, uh, which ended in 1945 which actually drove a lot of the industrialization and innovation of technology in the United States. It brought women into the workforce in large scale. But you also had a, a real concerted, unified effort globally with the establishment of Bretton Woods, for example, which became the parent of the uh, IMF, World Bank, UN, etc., really come together and argue that uh, we needed to see much more unified global approaches. So you see more trade emerging. Um, and the period from 1950 to 2008, very symbol- symbolic, what, what I'm going to call the golden age, uh, is very uh, similar in terms of, uh, very similar to the Gilded Age in terms of high economic growth, large corporations, relatively laissez-faire government, lots of trade, lots of capital flows. Um, and, you know, we've all been around for this period. So we've seen a lot of those gains. However, those gains have not been distributed fairly and widely. And that's mm-hmm. where the problem emerged. Um, governments had massive tax revenues. Instead of investing in infrastructure, they invested in wars. So just an example, in the United States, the infrastructure is graded D+. Mm-hmm by the American Civil Engineer Society. That has nothing to do with China. That's a deliberate choice by the American public policymakers, Republican and Democrat, over a period of time, choosing that their marginal dollar was not going to go into infrastructure. So what what does that mean? It means today, not only is the U.S. graded a D-plus in traditional infrastructure, like ports and railways and roads, but also we are set really behind from China in more innovative new technologies and more new infrastructure, and we're playing catch up. In fact, things like facial recognition, AI, um, for many of these were actually considered behind. And so public policy is trying to catch up with that. Um, There are other examples of public policy decisions that were a folly and they've created a problem um, that has really gone to the guts of the American middle class. Things like underinvestment in education, This country, according to a McKinsey report, the the global consulting firm, is going to be minority majority by 2050. But if you look at the underinvestment in education, Blacks and Latinos in particular, who will be the majority, it could put the country in a permanent recession because we have these people, you know, largely these populations are are ill-equipped to uh, to compete in a in a much more techno world. And it's not just Blacks and Latinos. We know about from uh, Hillbilly Elegy, the likes of Appalachia and pockets of America that have been written about extensively, uh, white America, where their living, living uh, life expectancies have declined, opioid use. I mean, it's, it's a corrosive 
uh, degradation of society, which again, as I, I mentioned, has a lot to do with bad public policy choices, bad policy decisions in, in corporations, as well as society writ large, and has relatively little to do with China, even though China is the one that we focus on. Okay, I think we're going to have to give out antidepressants with this episode of the podcast. <laughs> Jesus. Hopefully not. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many topics you just raised that in the fullness of time, I would like to discuss, but let's focus on wealth inequality for a moment. And I think this somewhat relates to an illusion of continued growth that many people suffer from. Because when you look at the stock market now, it seems like we don't have a problem of growth. The economy looks like it's booming. It looked like it was booming during COVID. Obviously, the stock market isn't the economy, but what we have is is an economy. You know, globally speaking, this is probably true. I mean, you can tell me how true it is globally compared to to um, uh, within any given society like America. But there is a something like a winner take all, or certainly winner take most phenomenon now, where the gains in productivity, the growth such as it is, is accruing to the one percent, and even you know to it an asymptotic degree to the the one-tenth of one percent and beyond. How do you think about wealth inequality now? So it's, I think that, the, first of all, the issue is not just about wealth inequality. I think the issue is inequality in general, because mm. um, the problem with inequality is that it, 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 it means that people have less access to education, healthcare, political rights, opportunity writ large. And so, you know, I know people love to focus on wealth in of itself. And I do see that very much as an easy target. Um, there's a, 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 in my, my book from 2018, Edge of Chaos, I talk about how Oxfam, the, uh, the charity had cited that, and, you know, just a couple of years ago that, uh, the eight wealthiest men, they're all men in the world, um, had more wealth than the bottom 50% of the world's population. And yeah. there are many of these types of statistics we're familiar with, uh, even in, in, within the United States, but also between country sort of uh, excess and, and uh, inequality. But I do, I do worry that sometimes the term inequality and how it's defined does conflate a number of issues. And it's also easy to be confused about the distinction between wealth inequality and income inequality. Correct. And those are Correct. quite distinct. So. Correct. And look, I'll say right out that I think for every argument that somebody like myself, who's more uh, a believer in market capitalism, um, obviously understanding it needs to be regulated, it needs to have good policies behind it. But I lean into a much more capitalist type mindset, there will be people who will argue vehemently and quite compellingly to the untrained ear, I would say, uh, that, uh, you know, that the root of the problem that we see in capitalism or inequality today is inherent in capitalism in of itself. And so government needs to do more on that. But, you know, let's, let's put the debate to a side for one moment. Let me just highlight a couple of issues with focusing on in fact, I'll, I'll highlight two issues very quickly with focusing on this idea of wealth inequality or inequality without really getting into, into the, the, the weeds. Um, so first of all, as economists, we don't know the answer 
on how to solve inequality. And I, I say that with uh, with temerity, but also some humility in there, because I think economists and public policymakers love to sound like we have the answers just not being executed upon. Um, we are looking for short-term solutions to what is effectively long-term problems. Uh, we have tried left-leaning solutions, tax and redistribution. Those have not worked in terms of stemming inequality. We've also tried more right-leaning supply-side interventions where we've cut taxes and we've sort of tried to spur investment. I can assure you those have also not led to, to greater uh, or rather less inequality. So we are kind of stumped because, uh, you know, I think we are looking for some quick fix. Oh, if I tax and redistribute or if I cut taxes, you know, Bob's, Bob's your uncle, we're going to have uh, inequality reduced. Mm-hmm. And that has just not happened. So if you ask me what kinds of things could help solve this inequality problem, they're not appealing because they're all long term. They require intergenerational choices, things like investing in education, investing in infrastructure, in innovation. Um, you know, the, the American historical contract, construct, you know, over 200, 300 years has really been one of investing in the future. And yet this generation of Americans, for the first time in the history of the country, is less educated than the pre- pre- preceding generation. Mm. Um, so that's one problem. The other issue is when we say inequality, you know, we aren't really being articulate about whether or not we're talking about inequality within a country versus between countries. And the reason this is quite interesting is that here, this is one of the, to me, the, one of the biggest conundrums that we're facing in society today. We are living in a live experiment. Number one and number two largest economies in the world are the United States and China, respectively. The United States is a market capitalist society and by and large has chosen democracy as its political ethos. China, second largest economy in the world, has deprioritized democracy and has market uh, state capitalism as its political uh, approach. And these two economies, two different political systems, two different economic systems, but they have the same Gini coefficient, which is the measure of inequality, mm. around point, point 0.42. So if you come from uh, like myself, somebody born and raised in Africa or you're in South America and you're looking for an, a, which path to address inequality, you don't really have a clear line of sight of what policies actually deliver better outcomes. Because, as I mentioned, we, the, the, the story is quite murky and neither the left nor the right has delivered emphatically uh, an answer to how do you actually limit inequality, in the, certainly in the short term, because as far as I'm concerned, we know longer term, it's about investment in the future. Well, couldn't someone from the left charge that, that we really haven't successfully tried adequate redistribution? I mean, you, you must be aware of the ProPublica scandal of uh, recent months where they, they published the tax returns of um, the richest people in the U.S. and mm-hmm. it was it was revealed that you know even Warren Buffett, who has been such an articulate champion of revising our tax policy in favor of redistribution, and you know, he famously said it makes yeah. no sense that you know I pay a, a lower tax rate than my secretary. Yeah, you know he distinguished himself for paying I think it was an effective one tenth of one percent on his uh, earnings t- through that period. Mm-hmm. 
we have a tax code that is so full of loopholes for the mm-hmm. the wealthiest people that what we've witnessed is just um, a successful gaming of a well-intentioned policy, but not the effective implementation of that policy. You're not hopeful that if yeah. we actually could get the richest people to kind of in every cohort down through the middle class to pay a proper citizen's share to the common good, we would have we, li- we would live in a different society? I think so. You know, I am empathetic to the argument that, you know, everyone should pay their fair share and there needs for sure, absolutely needs to be more tax reform in this country. You know, I, I say this again with, with great humility. I have two masters and a PhD from arguably some of the best schools on the planet. And even I struggle to understand what the heck are these forms talking about when mm-hmm. I'm filling in my taxes. So there's clearly a lot of work that needs to be done there. And yes, there are, I'm sure, um, many loopholes and ways to game the system that even I'm not familiar with that people are taking advantage of. So yeah, I'll give you that. But I think in many respects, it is a red herring. What we need is government efficiency. And this is where, again, I find it quite disheartening, especially coming from places like Africa, where, you know, or living around the world, where I've seen and it's kind of well known that government just does a bad job at allocating resources such as capital and labor. You know, I I was very struck by something that Mike Bloomberg um, has allegedly said, which is uh, around what he thinks the efficacy of uh, what an efficient government should look like. This is It should be a government that is data-driven, forward-leaning, focuses on measured outcomes, and is not corrupt. And the reality is, I'm afraid to say that, you know, even Western governments um, are not ticking those boxes. We, we don't see them being data-driven. They seem to be always playing catch-up and being reactive as opposed to proactive. They aren't forward-leaning. You know, I gave you an example. They, they weren't invested in infrastructure around technology. They're playing catch up, you know, and this is just not acceptable for a leading economy. They don't focus on measured outcomes. There's a lot of evidence around the underperformance of education, but we were, we're almost beholden to, to uh, you know, vested interests in education, in, in healthcare and other areas that are leading to, to bad outcomes and, and bad dis, you know, policy decisions. And then of course, with respect to corruption, I mean, how many times, time and time again, we, we expose uh, pockets of corruption. So I'm afraid that, uh, you know, more money in a system that is still wrought with these issues, to my mind, is, is not necessarily a solution. You know, I, I, I love the, the phrase that revenue hides uh, you know, a lot of, or solves a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at some point, there's something to be said about efficiency as well. And we just are not doing a, as good a job as I would say previous generations have done in terms of building out the, uh, the, the, you know, interstate network, building Silicon Valley, you know, the, the real innovation that the United States uh, has been known for, I just feel has really whittled away. And I, and I should, you know, be very clear, Sam, I'm not giving up on the U.S. I think the U.S. still is a country where, which likes to write itself or does write itself when it goes too far in, in, the, in the sort of self-harm. But, you know, if ever there were a time when the yellow masks in the plane of, uh, should be coming down to say we really <laughs> need to do something fast, I would say, you know, th- this is it. The, mm. the U.S., the education statistics from the OECD PISA are atrocious. The United States in mathematics, reading, writing is at the bottom. Uh, you know, it used to be number one, two and three. Now it's number 27, 28, 
29, we're being, you know, railroaded and overcome by emerging market economies on the regular. We've got so much debt. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And yes, it's true that there have been some reasons, compelling and, you know, defensible reasons for us to, to raise the debt levels given COVID, given the financial crisis. But at some point in time, we can't continue to, you know, assume we'll always be a reserve currency, assume that other economies, other systems of financial and, you know, uh, networks and architecture could emerge that could put us at a distinct disadvantage. And, you know, all the while we are playing politics every two years. You know, mm-hmm. there's just no, there's no common discussion that to my mind is not a really the sophisticated level of discussion that is required for a leading country to continue to lead. Um, and maybe it's happening, you know, behind closed doors, but it's pretty disheartening to see what's happening in Washington and, and with institutions and society writ large. Well, given that you're behind many of those closed doors, I'm not hopeful that it, that it is happening there if you're not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. So much of what you said suggests that really we have a, a fundamental problem with democracy, or at least democracy as it's currently formed. I mean, it's a, it just our inability to focus on long-term problems is anchored to what you just described as the short-term political time horizon of every full-time politician. I mean, it seems like people get elected simply to then get reelected, right? And they have, you know, they have about 15 minutes to focus on solving problems before they then have to worry about the next election. So it's... But but we we also, as citizens, we reward that. You know, we ought to be much more savvy, much more attuned to the fact that getting a tax break today just is postponing the inevitable. We're going to owe that money back sometime in the future. We need to be more aware that when our government borrows, they're borrowing from China, which is the largest foreign lender to the United States government. It does flip between China and Japan. But basically, China, who we, we insult, we get into fights with on a regular basis, is holding you know, potentially the largest amount of foreign debt. It, it means that, that we're not having economic conversations. We're having geopolitical conversations and risks to our society mm. that are, you know, to, as you say, it goes to the heart of our democracy, um, you know, not just the long-term problems, but also to low participation rates. Yeah. How is this connected or is it connected to the weakening of institutions and, um, the, you know, the, the rise of illiberal democracies throughout the world or the rise of populism? It seems like with respect to people's consumption of information now and just our inability to acknowledge a, a common set of facts on on any topic of significance, whether it's you know whether or not the 2020 election was run properly, or whether it was stolen, whether COVID is worth taking seriously, whether vaccines are safe. We just we're on a kind of a runaway train of misinformation, conspiracy thinking, half truths, yeah. lies. All of us being supercharged by social media and a breakdown of trust in mainstream media and obvious failures in mainstream media organizations to do their job. What what are the points of, of greatest concern here and, and mm-hmm. what, what can you imagine us doing to correct course? Well, so it is deeply disheartening. Um, and, you know, 
at the risk of sounding like a broken record, it's particularly disheartening for someone like myself who's come from a you know poor country, comes to the United States, comes to the West with great aspirations to experience the fullness of participatory democracy, you know, freedom in terms of not just political rights, but also economic rights. And really to see a breakdown in what I would say are two things. One, it's a breakdown in belief and transparency. There's just something, which by the way, I should say both of these things I believe have happened over time. It doesn't just happen in the last few weeks. Um, So we have less transparency, or people's perceived sense that there's less transparency about where the decisions are being made, where is the quote unquote room where these things are happening. But also if there's a lack of agreement on what is what defined what is defined as not just data but information. What we where can we all agree on in terms of facts? I was struck by something a very good friend of mine told me uh, some time ago that the breakdown in transparency, when really in the United States, the sort of scales fell off people's eyes was really around Watergate. Mm. So they would argue that that was really a turning point when people realized, wait a second, we are being manipulated by public policymakers. They're spying on each other. They're manipulating. And that that was a, a watershed moment in terms of transparency. There's no doubt in my mind that the watershed moment regarding information uh, has definitely been catalyzed by social media. The ability for people to make claims and statements and not be held accountable, and by the way, in an anonymous fashion, and people, there are other people who can make this argument much more eloquently than I, but to me has fundamentally altered our ability to judge what is data versus what is actually information. But these two things have, as I mentioned, I don't believe only started a few years ago even. I think this has been a sustained and deliberate sort of attack of our democracies over time that, you know, perhaps we, you know, ignored, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, whatever. It wasn't that big a deal, but has been catalyzed now in such a fracture to society that, uh, you know, it's, it's deeply, deeply worrying. But you, but you ask me, what can we do about it? And I think that's an important thing because we can sit here and navel gaze and say, woe is me, but what, what can be done? And I, I you know, in my, my, my book, Edge of Chaos, I, I talk about a bunch of reforms. I propose 10 things. I won't go through all of them, but really 10 ways that I think we can enhance democracy to address the problem of low participation rates um, but also to address the problem of short-termism that's built into our system. Again, we as citizens are rewarding our policymakers for taking these short-term decisions. We get promised a tax break. We're rushing out to vote for these people, you know, without real due consideration for the consequences uh, later on. So let me just maybe highlight a couple of things sure. that I think would be quite interesting to explore. Uh, I should say two things about what I'm about to say. One is that the list of 10 things that I propose in, the, in that book are, are not a sort of that innovative, meaning somewhere on the planet, and I state where, they are already using these, these tools and they've been tried and, and errored. And so in that sense, we have some semblance that they could work. But the other thing is that I'm not so inured to living and having worked in the United States to recognize that some of the proposals might be viewed very much as anti-American. 
mm-hmm. meaning they just fly in the face of what Americans believe. And let me start with that one. Um, so low participation rates and the fact that a lot of public policymaking has been captured by big money. Uh, we know this. I don't need to make the arguments. Billions of dollars spent to fight campaigns. We know about the uh, the PACs and the amount of money that goes to candidates. So we know that argument. Um, this is, I believe, has cr- contributed to low participation rates. And, you know, so just to give you some data, at low incomes, you know, households that have $30,000 or less, the uh, the average participation rate is about 30% uh, in elections. That number was around 50%, just high 50s in the U.S., you know, and we have, but we have seen improvements, I must say, in the last few years, but, but it's become, as the country's become more divisive, we've seen actually more improvements in this. But one example of something that we could do is, is so in order to, to really go for the one man, one vote, we could have mandatory voting. I understand this flies in the face of Americans who feel, hey, I have the right to vote or not vote, or it's my decision to choose what, you know, what I want to do or not do. But, you know, there are around 20 countries around the world that have yet used it to, to great effect. You get everybody's votes. It does matter for public policy outcomes. And I think you can do it in a way that actually enhances political discourse so that you don't have politicians rightly uh, for their own goals, pursuing wealthy mm-hmm. people and not really caring about what the average uh, person thinks. So that, actually, that's one example. If I can ask you about that, Denby. So what? Yeah. It's not obvious to me why that's so important in the end. I mean, if you just imagine that, uh, I think correctly, that most voters will be fairly uninformed about the issues, why does getting more and more of everybody who will be on balance uninformed add anything but noise to the signal? I mean, couldn't, couldn't one argue that it would be better for a smaller percentage of a society to vote if that percentage were people who were actually informed about issues? And I'm thinking of things like Brexit and, you know, other referendums that go haywire. Yes. So, well, haywire, some people would say haywire. Other people would say went exactly the way they wanted. Yeah, exactly. Um, But, but, you know, touche. And I think it's a very good point because, and I do, funny enough, one of the 10 proposals in the book is making the argument that we should be looking at specific vote people voting only being allowed to vote for certain things. So mm. I'll give you a very quick example. You know, I right. think I'm a pretty in, informed. Go ahead. We yeah, well, well, I just I just want to say that my comment is not was not as elitist as it might have sounded because I, I think this <laughs> this applies to me when I look at my voting behavior when I you know when I confront a ballot and there are all kinds of local initiatives and and you know judges uh, and people who I have not taken the time to vet even remotely are on the ballot, you know, I consider myself someone who's unqualified to vote for many of those things and, and often pass them Precisely. over. Precisely. So. Yeah. And, and by the way, and, that's, and that is why I made this recommendation. It's one of the 10 in my book, precisely because I consider myself pretty well-read, pretty knowledgeable, pretty informed about what's happening in different sectors, even outside of economics. But the truth is, if someone said to me, Dambisa, here's $1, a marginal dollar, I have no idea where that is best spent in the healthcare system. I don't know if we need to hire more nurses. I don't know if we need to buy more pills, more Mm -hmm. beds, more doctors. I have no idea. But I have to believe that people who work in that field, physical therapists, doctors, nurses, et cetera, 
will have more information than I. And so there is there are countries that are trying this, places like Switzerland, in Canada, um, I believe it's in Toronto, they've, they've tried to, they're flirting with this idea of saying, hey, wait a second, it, it could be knowledge-based. And by the way, I just for the avoidance of doubt, I'm sure there are people who are listening to this and their heckles are rising because it, it could very much sound like harking back to a period where, hey, we don't want Blacks, so we don't want women to vote. That's not at all what I'm suggesting here. But what I am saying is there is there a way for us to get better outcomes on public policy? And certainly, this is a debate that I think we should be having. But to your specific question, Sam, which was, um, you know, wh- why is it the case that having a broader base of people who are ill-educated voting, why that might enhance our outcomes? What I was addressing was was enhancing democracy. So democracy is one, quote unquote, man, one vote. Um, And all I was saying is that we are now in a situation where we've got weighted voting and the weighted voting is money-based. It's Mm -hmm. not knowledge-based. And that scenario comes with its own problems because what we're seeing is exactly what you just said. The stock market is rallying. That means the world must be righting itself. Well, guess what? Only you know a large proportion of the country's population is not even invested in the stock market. So it's you know the public policy, uh, the things that public policy looks at to point at as economic success, the things that society uh, focuses on, and especially public policy focuses on as progress, are things that perhaps unsurprisingly are basically the things that people who are wealthy, who influence public policy outcomes. Uh, find important. So all I'm suggesting is that if you want to have a much more egalitarian society where, you know, the average education system is better, the average, um, you know, healthcare system is better, then you need to bring in those voices. Because the truth of the matter is that that one tenth of percent probably doesn't really care mm. about, and I'm being simplistic for the, for in the interest of time, doesn't really have an axe to grind or doesn't really have a dog in the fight for low education standards. An argument could be made that they should care because they're living cheek by, by, by jowl with you know people who are don't have access or who are, who are suffering. But I'm just saying that in the, in the interim, I'm trying to enhance the number of people participating in democracy because I think we could get better outcomes. Mm. How much of um, our current... Uh economic woes in the US and uh, you know present and and near future do you think relate to automation and uh the evaporation of jobs that that either are are, are not replaced or are replaced by by worse jobs I mean, it seems to me that I mean when one worries about the trend line here and and the a future in which we we build better and better machines that one is is usually met by what what I consider to be bad analogies to prior advances in technology. People and then yeah. this often comes from a con- your fellow economists that people will say, well, <laughs> you know, it used to be that whatever sixty percent of Americans worked in agriculture, and now it's yeah. you know what well, I forget six yeah. percent or it's, you know less. Yeah, it's less than that. Yeah, yeah. less than three percent. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, yeah, these people found uh, we don't have a crisis of you know farmers who couldn't figure out what else to do with their lives. They they went into manufacturing, yeah. and then since and then in services, right. I know the argument. And then eighteen yeah, percent yeah. have ended up in manufacturing. About eighty percent have ended up in service sector jobs, and right. I, I know exactly the argument. Um, and so you know, what your question is, you know, how worried am I? I'm, I'm not, I haven't been worried, but we should be worried. 
Because uh, if anything, if we think about what are the lessons learned from the pandemic, digitization, the deployment of, uh, of, of, of human workers and labor, and really that sort of greater transparency into who actually is adding value, if I can put it as crudely as that, to an organization, I think it's become much more revealed. And uh, the, the question about automation, I would argue, in some of the boardrooms in which I sit, has really rapidly moved from, hey, technology advances are really about thinking around cyber risks and downside concerns into, wait a minute, we can actually reduce our cost overheads in terms of the buildings that we rent and lease, our you know f- footprint of how many planes we're flying, mm. business costs, et cetera by having fewer people do more work. I, so I think there's been already a shift in conversation. It was bound to happen. The World Economic Forum has been talking about 85 million jobs that were going to get replaced. And I do think that in the, you know, the, the scenario that we talked about, going from 60% agriculture in 1900, moving to manufacturing, then services and now to R&D, the difference is that we don't know what sector could absorb this population of workers. In those other sectors, we were aware, we knew that people were moving out of agriculture because of both push and pull factors that took them into manufacturing. Part of it is that war we talked about in uh, 1939 to 1945, the, the whole World War II infrastructure moved people out of farming, more mm. out of farming into, uh, into industrial jobs. And But that we know what has happened. The problem is it's not obvious where a large proportion of unskilled workers could land because the skill sets required for these new jobs is much higher. I'll just say one other thing here because it's that what I've just said is really about it assumes that people are out there looking for work and are not finding it. There's another disturbing data point, particularly seen in the US post the financial crisis, which is that the labor participation rate in this country has actually gone down. And it's quite sticky. And this is basically how many people have basically decided, you know what, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to look for work anymore. And they're essentially withdrawing their labor. Part of it could be because of furlough schemes and COVID, basically people reevaluating their lives, not wanting to work as hard or work in certain circumstances. I mean, there's a whole list of arguments, maybe even technological changes. But the net net is that not only are we demanding higher skills, going forward from the people who work, but we also have a situation where the human worker is withdrawing their work number, their work uh, services. And I think both of those lead me to be more concerned about uh, a jobless future. Hmm. Well, there's so much to talk about here. There are many other topics I want to touch with you, but I want to pivot to the quasi-political concerns that I started with at the beginning, and then we'll see if we have time for for the rest, uh, because mm-hmm. um, I just I, I don't want to miss this opportunity to get all of your thoughts on this topic. So, you know, so we, we're, we're talking about a crisis of legitimacy in democracy, a, a crisis of legitimacy around the, the economic system of, of capitalism, a space of information and misinformation that's making it increasingly difficult to talk about any kind of ground truth uh, on these topics mm-hmm. or any other. There's this growing 
reality of inequality of all sorts, you know, income, wealth, education, access to health care, and it's both, as you pointed out, gl- you know, global and domestic, uh, I, I feel like the comparison is, um, you know, what, even if it's made between countries, it's not so psychologically salient for people. I mean, people care much more about the proximate comparison, you know, how am I doing with respect to my neighbors as opposed to how, how am I doing with respect to you know, half the countries in Africa or Latin America. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably true to say that there are people in you know, American society who are much wealthier than many, even most people in the, in the developing world, but who are, who, you know, are in effect poor in our society and feel the full range of burdens of that poverty, you know, psychologically and socially. Uh, in a way that they wouldn't if they were in a village in India or Nepal or somewhere else, which is to say you can be better off in material terms and still psychologically worse off because you know the the only the only uh, software for running you know self-esteem uh, on our hard drives is to make comparisons with you know the the, the nearest examples of difference. Mm-hmm. So these problems are becoming even more difficult to talk about, think about, and take steps to mitigate because of what is just a level of, of political hyperpartisanship in our society that has just become totally unworkable. And, and again, you and I met at a dinner party where we were talking about the extreme polarization on the far left and, you know, you know referred to on this podcast and elsewhere as, as wokeism or uh, social justice activism or identity politics. I mean, there's a, there are very, various lenses you can put over this, but uh, there's a point of view in our society, you know, I think disproportionately expressed by the young and well-educated, surprisingly, and often, you know, white and well-educated, that um, basically calls into question, you know, as I said, capitalism and, you know, it certainly stigmatizes wealth. There's a, a belief that you know, there's, there's probably no ethical way to become a billionaire. I mean, the only way to be a billionaire is to have perpetrated some horrific fraud on society or to have inherited the money or, you know, some other means that is, you know, ethically indefensible. There's, uh, I think, a pervasive sense that any exercise of American power is illegitimate and, and probably diabolical on the world stage. And, and this probably runs all the way back to our founding. There's a sense that American society is irretrievably racist, and that you know not only have we not made significant progress, it, it's in, in some ways we've uh, it's never been worse than than at this moment. And, you know, the clock is you know two minutes before midnight with respect to um, the race-based inequalities in our society, and so that there's just a a sense that we are at some crisis point. With respect to the the perception of of the state of our democracy and society coming from the left, we can leave the the mirror image on the right aside for the moment. And I guess let's focus. I mean, this this relates to every perceived victim group. I mean, we can you know this is true of women's rights and and you know Me Too and trans rights and questions of gender. But let's focus on race. For the moment, and identity politics, and affirmative action, and you know, just all of these nested concerns and policies that that fall there. 
I'm wondering what your perception as a an African woman, you know, it's, uh, whenever I speak to Africans, I'm I'm always impressed at what a unique perspective they give on race relations in the U.S. What what, what is your perception of our moment here and and how we should be thinking about it and um, dealing with it? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you've made the or stressed the point that I'm I was born and raised in Africa because I think it does materially alter. Um, my sort of knowledge and understanding of uh, both being a Black person in Europe and the United States. Um, and and it, perhaps it's not surprising because it, it raised, the definition of racism, the experience of racism varies so much in, across the world. Um, mm. in, the, in the UK, for example, there's a lot of arguments that it's not about race, it's much more a class-based society. You go to the caste system in India, which is very race-based. You go to Africa, where the color bar system, as I mentioned at the beginning, was very structured around you know, what, what your race was. And it was so well thought out, if I could use that term like that, um, that you know, it, the hierarchy was very, very broken down. It was not just about being black or white. It was black, white, Indian, colored, meaning a mixture of black and white, but even after that, there were different groups based on whether you were the child of two colored parents. There's a, a whole very deeply embedded system. So for me to, you know, having been born and raised in formative years in Africa to show up in the US um, with, with a lot of aspirations, having consumed a lot of American propaganda growing up in Africa, um, yes, I have views around racism, but I have not lived it, you know, throughout my life. I've only come to it um, I would say in my my early twenties. So mm. maybe I'll just say uh, in in at a very high level the following points: Does racism exist? Absolutely, it does. I've experienced it in the United States. Um, I've experienced it in uh, you know and elsewhere around the world. Um, as a black person, you know, I think most black people, many black people, would find it hard not to have experienced something to do uh, with discrimination based on their race. It could be as structural and deeply systemic as not getting a job offer or not being interviewed because you're of your race, not being considered for positions, or it could be as something what people, some people might view as relatively trivial, but nevertheless damaging psychologically um, as going into a store and somebody not willing to give you money in your hand in terms of your change. And look, there's a whole array of things in there. I'm just throwing out sort of extremes here to point the view that you've got a society, it seems to many, not yet come to terms with a multi-generational sort of uh, system that delineated based on race. Now, the reason I think it's important, especially today, is that there are racial disparities that exist in education, in healthcare in job opportunities, in criminal justice. You don't have to believe me. Go look at the numbers. Mm. I, you know, my, my friend Melody Hobson always says the numbers don't lie. And I love that because she's right. We don't have to get all emotional here. Go look at the numbers and you will see systemic you know, uh, levels of, of racism. Um, but to me, the thing that is most has been the most compelling articulation of racism and the damage that it uh, unleashes on a society, especially in the United States, is something that I heard of uh, heard about a few years ago at a conference. I won't mention who the person is because your your listeners will know who it is, but 
a very, very well-known political advocate, Black political advocate. And he made the following point in speaking to very successful Black leaders in the United States. He said, it is true, you are not, you are not, you're no longer discriminated or you're no longer enslaved, is what he said. You're not no longer enslaved. We've had Jim Crow, we've had uh, slavery abolished, and we've even had the civil rights movement, no doubt about it. So we can drink from the same fountains, go wherever we like, by and large. He said, but what you need to appreciate, and I was very humbled by this point, is that we live in a capitalist society. And in a capitalist society, those who can accrue capital are seen as more as being citizens. And I'm paraphrasing his language. He was much Mm. more eloquent than I. But his point just being that as long as you live in a place like America and you cannot accumulate capital, whether it's you can't get a house in a certain area because of redlining or you can't get a mortgage or you can't get a job because you're being discriminated because of your race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, you have political freedoms, but you don't have economic freedoms, and therefore you cannot be free. And the reason I think that that is such a powerful point is that I do worry that right now we might actually be so enamored by what I would call pyrrhic victories around the race agenda. Oh, you know, we need more blacks and more women on boards. We need more blacks and women in, in uh, you know, student bodies, et cetera. And we are filling those numbers. But the truth is, my read is that the biggest capital decisions, the money that's going to be made in future generations, when you were alluding to earlier, when you think about inequality in the future, who is going to, where are those decisions being made? Where are those investments being made? And I believe that more and more those discussions and debates are being had offline in private groups, among private uh, organizations. And once again, we might be celebrating progress. Oh, look, there were X number of Blacks on this board. But what we might be missing is that we're still losing at the bigger game of a capitalist society, which is around what I just said, which is participating in economic progress. So what do you actually mean? You're saying there's some inner sanctum from which people of color are still being excluded, where the, the truly consequential decisions are being made? Is that, did I read uh, you right yeah, there? Yeah, I'm, I'm saying that, and I don't mean it as a sort of cynical approach. What I'm saying is, look at the data. We have, over the past 10, 15 years, the number of publicly traded corporations has gone down by 50%. There mm-hmm. used to be 7,000 publicly traded companies, and now only 3,500 publicly traded companies. We focus a lot on whether those publicly traded companies have women and blacks and minorities on their boards, in their C-suites, et cetera. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. It's important. But at the same time, as we've seen a breakdown in the number of people on, you know, a number of publicly traded corporations, we've seen the massive increase in private equity, for example, Mm -hmm. private money being put to work, invested in this country. And there are a lot of people, I would hazard a guess, who look like me, who are not part of those conversations and who are not part of those investments. But don't you think there's a commensurate pressure being felt by private equity firms and tech firms and any private company that has any stature to to follow the same playbook? It's impossible to hold them to account. 
some how do you hold them to account? I right. mean, what okay. are we going to do? So let's suppose there is a private a private company that decides that they are going to have, be a cabal of you know, twelve guys, and they they're going to they're each going to put some money in and invest in company X or invest in project X. You know who who is actually shining a light on that? I don't. I, I my my right. sense is that there. And again, I don't want to sound sort of conspiratorial, but I'm just saying that this is the natural structure of the economy today. We have enormous pockets of wealth in private equity, and they are making enormous capital allocation decisions that are going to generate, you would hope, lots of economic growth, lots of opportunity, uh, and financial success for the future. I'm what I'm I'm I'm, I'm questioning is whether or not. This pyrrhic victory of have oh we need more women we need more blacks etc is actually translated into those in, inner discussions and opportunities and I and that's why I think this comment around yes we are no longer slaves yes there's been Jim Crow rules and there's been civil rights and there's been massive political transformations but we are not yet the holders of real estate and capital you know as the as as an American citizen if I can put it uh, ought to be. And and that's where uh, I would argue we fall down. Hmm. What do you think about the downside of affirmative action, though? I mean, we're, we're now seeing this fairly grim calculus playing out with respect to admission to colleges, where you have an older fir- affirmative action policy colliding with the, just the reality of of meritocracy coming from the Asian community, and so and it has revealed just explicitly racist policies designed to disadvantage Asians in order to make more room for African Americans at the the high school level you know competitive high schools where you know there are tests that people need to take to get to gain admission and in you know colleges like Harvard I mean many of us who you know are who are outside the implications of that controversy view this as a as a kind of dead end for affirmative action, that it's like well, we can't tip from one form of racism into another form of racism to solve mm-hmm. the problem of racism. You know, speaking personally, it, it just seems to me that at some point this spell has to break, and we have yeah. to not care about the superficial differences between people, you know, i.e., skin color. Yeah. In the same way that yeah. we don't we don't care about hair color. I mean, no one's no one's even thought to ask how many blondes got into Harvard last year. Granted, we don't have a history where we've cared too much about hair color and, and made millions of people suffer as a result. But at a certain point, a healthy society w- with respect to race and racial difference has got to look like our society already looks with respect to a variable like hair color, which is to say it's just not a factor that anyone thinks about. Yeah. And so listen, you and I can agree with that. But for every, let me just highlight three or four points for you. That make this whole conversation difficult. You know, first of all, at a very high level, like many Black people, Latinos, Asians that I know, friends of mine, you know, uh, you know, relatives, we're not asking for favors. We don't want anybody to do us a favor. I do not want to sit in a boardroom where people look at me and askance and assume I'm there simply because of my race and my gender. That's of no utility to me, and ultimately no utility to the organization. So what does that mean? It means the more transparent and the less corrupted a system is, the more people will feel like, hey, I, if you tell me that I need to have three A's and a G, GMAT score of X, I, and everybody understands that that's the, what is required, 
then all, that's all fair, well, and good. The problem is that for every scenario that you just described to me, which is, hey, wait a second, there's affirmative action that's discriminating against Asians, there is an expose of people paying for their kids who are ill-qualified to go to universities. We know about that Varsity Blues saga mm. with USC, Yale, so many top universities were ensnared in that scandal, which it goes back to what I said earlier. We've had a corrosive breakdown of transparency and information. I have to tell you, I was mortified to find out that that is the case, that actually you could buy your way as through these quote unquote side doors. And maybe I'm just ignorant. Maybe I just came to, to a little bit too Pollyanna-ish about coming to America and thinking everything was meritocratic and, and, and uh, transparent. I, I'm living through that right now. But that's one point. The second point is people talk about affirmative action. 97% of the Blacks who go to the Ivy League universities in the United States are African and Caribbean. 97%. That number might have altered a little bit, but it's fundamentally the vast majority are from Africa and the Caribbean. So, and and by the way, I think most of the people who go to these universities who are Black from African Caribbean will have no problem showing their grades. Um, mm. We're not coming from a system which, you know, has ostensibly argued that they're doing us a favor um, or they're, they're wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we're dropping standards. And I, and I want to be very clear, I have many African-American friends who are top performers, but they've also lived a much tougher life than I have. I grew up in a majority black society. Nobody ever told me I couldn't do it. Mm. Um, in the United States, people who are my age of 52 have been berated for, you know, all their lives about being second class citizens, ineffective, and, and they still try to excel and contribute. And it's hard. The third point I would raise, which I, again, you know, it's a bit of a large statement to make, but I do think that is, is a cause for pause to think about whether there's real value in this, is a very good friend of mine says, the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action in this country have been white women. If you look mano a mano in boardrooms, in C-suites, organizations, who has actually benefited from the need for diversity? It's been white women. And the numbers, again, they don't lie. Look at, look at just the proportion of that. Now, I'm not here. I'm not a race expert. I don't have you know, this knowledge uh, as well articulated as, as somebody who spends a lifetime looking at this might do. But I do think that none of us, like you have intimated, should be pursuing some kind of a system of discrimination against different groups. I, you know, I've said this many times, we should not be fighting discrimination with discrimination. And that doesn't mean just Blacks against Asians or Blacks against Latinos. It's also about Blacks against whites. In the boardrooms in which I serve, I want to make sure that high-performing white guys are not getting kicked out because, hey, now there's some either narrative or optics that says we don't want high-performing white guys. And, and that is a risk for sure. Mm. But let's also understand that there are many, many, many Blacks of African-Caribbean origin as well as African-American origin who are high-performing, extremely talented, who are sitting on the beach because society has systemically has refused to include them, has refused to try and accommodate them. And that is really what you're seeing a blowback on. So how do we solve it? I really believe we have to be much more transparent. To this day, as, as I would say, perhaps as savvy as I am at navigating different cultures. I mean, here I am 
having lived in the US, having lived in Britain, these are not countries which I was where I was raised. My parents, yes, they lived here, they studied here, but they're not from these countries. I don't have an inbuilt infrastructure of uh, of networks. But I would say that even the level that I've achieved, having been able to work in the best institutions, go to the best universities, there are still organizations, gatherings, events, appointments, prizes, things that are given as as signs of success, signs of progress, signs of contributing to society that I have absolutely no idea how those things are administered or decided. And that is the problem, because as long as you have that and as long as you have a system which continues to show people of certain races and genders continue to progress and others who on on paper look like they should be succeeding but are not, you're going to end up with a system where people feel like there's lack of transparency and lack of information. Therefore, they're being discriminated against. So I'm a big advocate for transparency. And, and listen, I think if somebody said to me, Dambisa, I am not giving you this job because you're good at A, B, and C, but you're bad at D, E, and F, that's incredibly helpful to me. I can go and work on D, E, and F. What if you don't get the job because though you're a black woman, you're not a lesbian and you're not yet diverse enough? But that, that my view is discrimination. I fundamentally have a problem with discrimination of any sort. We should be aspiring for a society that does not condone or support discrimination. What you and I are talking about is remedying centuries of discrimination in this country. And the problem, what I'm saying is that let's not try once again to use shortcuts to solve the problem, because I do think it can hurt us. What I think we should be doing is let us pursue more transparency, more information about what and how people get these positions. And that, to me, is a much more sustainable uh, and a much better Uh, way of dealing with these issues. We've already lived through the Salem witch trials. We've lived through McCarthyism. Now we've got wokeism. And this is putting our feet to the fire to say, we've got to do better. We've got, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with bad optics. We simply don't know why we get rejected. And so when we don't get, we don't get something, we don't even get a response for something we, we thought we would have at least gotten an interview for. It's very easy and very tempting to say, it must be because of my race and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, so I am a big advocate. I'm very hopeful that America will right this wrong. Um, and I, I think there's low hanging fruit. I think if we are more transparent about what we're doing and there's none of this sort of secret cabals and all this stuff going on, I think we have a better shot at remedying this. But just to be absolutely clear, I am totally against discrimination of any any sort. And we all should be. We all should be, you know, it's, you know, use the... Uh, the words of Martin Luther King, let's not judge each other by the color of our skin. But what is this exactly we're contributing to society? It's about competence. And unfortunately, too many people who are white and male, who have been incompetent, have gotten positions. And too many people who are black, Latino women, you know, take your pick or whatever it is, have not gotten opportunities. Um, And actually, it's to the detriment, not just of the individual, it's to the detriment of our society as a whole. Mm. And that's what I think we need to remember, that we don't want to live in a society where underperformers, you don't want your surgeon to be somebody who got in there because of affirmative action. And that's why transparency and information really matters. Yeah, it seems to me, however, that transparency could just deliver us into a a reality of self-knowledge that would be as politically toxic as the 
the wokest among us fear, right? So, I mean, I think that one of the disclosures from the, the lawsuit against Harvard by Asian students was that if they were truly uh, race-blind in their admissions policy, the next matriculating class at Harvard would be something like 57% Asian, 25% white, and 2% black. I mean, something, I forget how it was broken up, but it was, it was along those lines, right? If, if you were just going to go pure meritocracy and race blind and just do it on the basis of test scores and GPA, that's what you would wind up with. And, and it would be transparent, but it would be unacceptable for a variety of reasons. And so I'm wondering, I mean, what wouldn't, let's just assume for the moment that that was a, that is the status quo. And it's the result of the kinds of inequalities we've touched on. I mean, so we, we have this, you know, massive difference in, in, in educational quality at the grade school and, and you know, high school level, right? So, which is, so that you have the, the legacy effect of that, which we can't fix overnight. A massive difference in wealth inequality between blacks and whites and, and you know, certainly blacks and Asians in American society. I, I think the, for blacks and whites, it's, a, it's almost an order of magnitude. I think it's you know, for every dollar the average black family has, has accrued in wealth. I think it's $8 on the white side. Right? And all of that has uh, implications for just parental freedom to invest resources in, in kids at the youngest ages to get them, them ready to, to apply to Harvard. What policy, what transparent policy could an institution like Harvard have that would be ethical? Like, I mean, the, the, you know, yeah. w- would, it, would it be ethical to say the kinds of the, the, the affirmative action we practice is, you know, it's purely based on merit, but when there's a tie, we give the tie in the direction of the diversity that balances but our they don't, class. They don't, they don't anyway, right? They give, they lean into. Like uh, you know, legacy people well, whose parents forget forget legacy. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think we can agree that that legacy admissions does is 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 probably indefensible. Though but, though but, but, though fundraising yeah, is going to get a lot harder yeah. when they do away with it. But, For sure, but 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 I'm just saying that there you know there are some inbuilt systems that also perpetuate having you know, what, what you have, which is still the majority of, of students who go to these schools are white and male, and I would argue probably not Jewish, uh, if I did, dare I start to spew mm-hmm. terrors about these things. But let me just go back to your fundamental question, which is, we have a definition, we as in society, of what merito- meritocracy means, right? So we're saying, oh, well, I've got high GMAT scores, and I did great in SATs, and I've got five A's or whatever, and therefore I should be I should be at Harvard. And and I and to be honest, most of my life I've taken that view as being meritocracy. But I now that I've served on corporate boards for the past 10 years, I've realized that there's another question that organizations like a Harvard, like a boardroom have to address, which is okay, what are we trying to solve for for the institution? Okay? And sometimes and I'll, the reason I bring up the boardroom is that traditionally boards have said, oh, no, we only want people who've been ex-CEOs or have been an, either have been a CEO or have been a CFO. And that has put a distinct disadvantage at people like myself, Blacks, women, who are not, the pipeline is pretty thin for people mm-hmm. who've run large corporations. But what has happened is that these organizations realized, wait a second, we are missing out on massive trends and things that are happening in society that matter for the decisions that we make in the boardroom. And, those, and a lot of those things 
might be happening in academe, they might be happening in science, they might be happening in geopolitical and public policy circles. And the fact that we're saying we only take CEOs and CFOs puts us at a distinct disadvantage. And so what ended up happening is people like myself, who, by the way, for 10 years, I tried to get on boards, did not get even an interview for the very reason that people said what their definition of meritocracy for a board seat was, Hmm. you had to be a CEO, you had to be a CFO. When they decided, actually, wait a minute, over 50% of our revenues are coming from outside of the United States. We need to understand what's going on in the emerging markets. We need to figure out what's happening in different cultures, different societies, which have different ideological constructs, political constructs, economic constructs. That was a window, an aperture that widened. To some people, they probably still point at me and say, well, she's an example of affirmative action because she didn't come from the C-suite. And so bring it back to your university analogy. Yes, we out here, the sort of untrained eye, are saying, wait a minute, this person got high grades and high SAT scores, they should be at Harvard. We don't know what Harvard thinks is value for their community. Maybe the doctors that they're training need to have spent time on the ground working in Rwanda during the Civil War to understand what it's like to work with constrained resources. I, I don't know, but I'm just hazarding a guess, and which is why, again, transparency really matters. Because as long as you and I think in meritocracy's definition is is grades, we're going to be upset and we're going to sue the institutions. But as long as they say, wait a minute, let me tell you exactly why I'm not picking you and I'm picking this other person, it will actually help to heal society. I really believe that. And And you might say, well, Demisa, you're a beneficiary of this changed world. For 10 years, I tried to get on boards. And by the way, nobody told me. No one said to me, let me pull you aside and you've got no chance because you happen to be, you know, not from the C-suite. I had to figure that out myself. And I was very, it's very fortuitously have managed to get into the boardroom because they changed their stance. They realized, wait a minute, if we're going to compete against China in these emerging markets, we better have people who understand what's going on in those places, who've lived there, who've worked there. And that was an opening for me. So I, I think we can sit here and quibble about what meritocracy means. My guess is that there's probably some minimum bar that Harvard has on grades because surely they don't want the candidates or the students not to complete their degrees. But I think it's really very presumptive of us to assume that meritocracy in their mind for the people that they're producing, who they want to lead politically in corporations, in sports or whatever fields of the future, technology, et cetera that their definition of what a successful person will look like must be somebody who's got great grades. I think we're mm. wrong. That, and, and that's where I think there's a window for opportunity to do better if they just tell us what it is that they're looking for. If they said, Dambisa, we're coming out of COVID, I'm very obsessed with people who've actually spent time working in pandemics. Maybe they lived through H1, whatever, the bird flu or through SARS, or they, you know, they've done research on the Spanish flu. Uh, that's transparent information. I can take myself out and say, hey, it's not me. But they don't tell us that. And that's where the problem emerges, because then we always think that we should be getting positions that we might not be because we're, we're, not, we're not fitting into what they think is meritocratic. Mm. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point, because when you think of, um, you know, the, in this case, the grievances that Asian students had against Harvard, it's hard to think of the version of transparency that would really mollify them. But it's got to be something like, you know, from Harvard's point of view, there's an intrinsic good in balancing a class 
with some semblance of, of representation of the society at large, right? And having a class that is 57% Asian just seems like it's got too many Asians in it, right? I mean, if diversity is, a, is an intrinsic good at all, if it means anything, then there is a zero-sum contest between people of one group versus people of another group. And, and if, you, if you need, if you, if you have a finite capacity for your class, and you need more African Americans and more whites to balance the Asians. You 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 need fewer Asians, right? And that's. Um, but but I think that. But again, I you know I I understand when people make that argument. I just don't buy it. I, you know, I mean, I'll give you another if I may. But 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 what, what I'm suggesting to you is yeah. like that. It's it's plausible that your call for transparency could produce nothing more morally illuminating than that. Like, listen, we want, we, we, what we're trying to get is 13% African-Americans because that's what we have in the society at large. And 57% Asians just doesn't make any sense. You know, we, we can't appear to be an Asian institution in the middle of America. That could be their point of view. It's defensible on some level, but it's, it's hard to believe that, that people would be as satisfied as you might seem to suggest there in, in just knowing the truth. But, but but Sam, again, you've already embedded the the numbers based on the population statistics, and I'm saying again, we're you're picking on something that is is easy for us to touch and point to. Hey, there must be bringing people on based on what percentage representation there are in the society, but we don't know that to be the truth. No, no, I, 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 it's I, just it's I, hypothetical. But if it were the right. truth, I'm just saying that that's. People might not be as as sanguine about that policy yeah. as as uh, uh, some other but policy. I, but, yeah, but I don't. I'm not suggesting that that is the policy. Right. I'm not saying point to the population. What I'm saying is that they may have some definition of what they think is value add for the community of mm -hmm. Harvard graduates and Harvard alumni going forward. And it might be people who worked more on the ground. And by the way, let's not be too precious about the fact that yeah, I I, I did go to to Harvard as a graduate student, but we, you know, it's not like people aren't trying to quote unquote go game the system, meaning we do guess about what it is that they're looking for. Hey, I better pick up violin. I better have an NGO project. I might do some art. I might speak a language in addition to being an A student. But we are making assumptions about what this university values. Mm. And all I'm saying is that we don't know what the university values. And there's an opportunity for the, the university to tell us, hey, this year, guess what? I value X. And I'm sorry. If you're blonde this year, yeah. brunettes are in or whatever the case. But if I, if I may, because I think this is a really, really important point. You know, I was on a call not too long ago about boards. And, and I think there's a lot of analogies here. And with respect to the board, someone, I made the point that there's a lot of evidence that having a more diverse board, not just in terms of race, but in terms of gender, actually enhances the returns of the company. And we, not, we don't have time today to, to, to sort of understand what the causality or correlation is, but that was the point I made. I said, listen, there's data from Harvard, her data from McKinsey, that more diversity leads to higher performance over the cost of capital, higher outreach. And someone made the point that Dambisa, for every paper that shows that diversity is value enhancing for a company, there's another paper equally compelling that shows that at best, it's neutral. Mm -hmm. There's no effect. And in some cases, it's actually a negative effect because it might send a signal, oh, the organization is not about meritocracy, it's just about 
padding with women and, and minorities. I, and I was surprised because the person went on to say, and this is what I think is really important. He said, and, and I raised my hat to him because he said, it's, he made the point that the bigger point that even if there's no data to support more diversity being value enhancing from an economic perspective, he made the point that there is a societal benefit from the institution being seen as more diverse and more attuned to their customers, regulators, broader stakeholder base. And I thought, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to say one last thing. I know this is a, a lot, probably a, a great diversion from what we've been talking about. Yeah. But the one last point is I pushed back on him and I said, I have a problem with, even though it can be quite comforting to know that, oh, actually society likes it. So we're going to have more women and more blacks. I said, the danger with that is that somebody like myself as a black woman, <laughs> excuse me, a black woman who's serving on these boards, who feels that I'm doing my very best. I get reviewed every year. I get critical feedback and I feel like I'm adding quote unquote value. But if people actually think I'm not there to add value, I'm just there to window dress. I said, that's very damaging for my ability to interact in the organization. I'm just going to leave you with that thought because I do think it translates to the question around diversity. We should all be pursuing a society where the color of our skin, hair, whatever is irrelevant. Nobody should care about that. We should all care about competence. And I do do think that that's the, the fundamental message we should pursue. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you just pointed to the kind of an uncanny valley problem with respect to this policy of of seeking diversity and and using some sort of affirmative action to get there. Because I can well imagine that any African American student at a great university that has an affirmative action policy lives under the shadow of people assuming that he or she is there because of that policy. But exactly. But 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 the irony there is that. If it's a good policy, if we support the policy, there should be no taboo around being someone who's there because of the policy, right? I mean, it it shouldn't be a dirty little secret or a stain on somebody's reputation if, in fact, the policy is virtuous and we are in favor of it. It should be totally fine for someone to think this about themselves and have it thought of them that they're at Harvard or wherever else because of affirmative action. But of course, it isn't because we have this deeply ingrained sense that something like a meritocracy is, you know, should structure these situations. And I mean, there's a lot to be said about the deficiency of meritocracy as a as a concept here. But but what, yeah, you what know. you're saying goes back to the transparency point because I think if people were transparent about the motivation of of affirmative action being couched as a good thing. That could only emerge if people actually felt that it has some elements of meritocracy. People aren't being shoved in there because of their race, but because they're actually talented mm. and they have grades, but they they've been overlooked because we've looked at we've looked for CEOs and C-suite people as opposed to hey widening our aperture. Anyway, right. I mean, look, I, I think we're on the same page in the sense that we both agree that we don't want to live in a world where people are being discriminated against. We, do, we don't want to lose out on that talent. If we're going to compete against China and succeed over the long term, we do need to have the most talented people mm-hmm. making the decisions. Whether it's my pilot or my surgeon, I don't want them in there because of affirmative action. I mm-hmm. want them there because they're the most talented person. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dambisa, I realize I've taken you close to the limit of your availability here, but I can't mm-hmm. let you go until you say something about 
what uh, I and all of our listeners should believe about the uh, current and future competition between the U.S. and China. Just give me the give me the download. What should I think about where all this is headed? So uh, I would say just a couple of things. First of all, history does have a tendency to repeat itself. China in 1820, according to Angus Madison, was the largest economy in the world. I mentioned this earlier. They made a bunch of mistakes policy-wise. They missed out on the Industrial Revolution and basically cost them several centuries. So, you know, being number one today doesn't is not sort of a hedge to say that means you're going to be at number one forever. Number two, which I think is probably a really important point about where we are in the world, China is the largest foreign direct investor, trading partner, and lender to the emerging markets and many developed economies around the world. Hmm. It has already got there. So we're already in play, whether we like it or not. My belief is that we are not going to win by nagging, annoying, you know, irritating, squabbling with them. Our best way, our best defense and our best way to fight is to show the rest of the world that being part of a democratic as well as market-based system with proper regulations in place and transparency in information is the best outcome for people's living standards, for political stability, which we're not seeing right now, all the populism issues, and also for long-term economic success, which we did not see because a lot of the problems came from the, of 2008 came from Western societies. So we've got some work to, be, to do there. The last point I'll make around China versus the U.S. is understand that there is a very fundamental difference of their outlook with respect to the world whether we like it or not. Hmm. In the West, as, and if I'm being critical of how we, as people like myself who are Western trained in economics, how we think about social goods versus private benefits, so social costs versus private benefits, what do I mean? I can eat whatever I like, have as many children as, as, much, you know, as many as I like. I can do pretty much anything I want as long as I don't impinge on the freedoms of somebody else in the West, but we don't actually think about what it means for social costs. Things like obesity mean that we take the marginal dollar that we might spend on education or infrastructure and we use it to save someone's life. And I'm not making a value judgment here. All I'm saying is that we as economists need to do a better job of thinking about that lens of what are the costs of this private benefit what is it actually doing to us societally? China has a completely opposite view. They actually, I think quite cynically, take the view that humans are not to be relied upon. They tend to do things that actually not only undermine society, but undermine themselves. So they drink too much. They eat too much. They, you know, they do a lot of things that even when they know actually eating too much sugar, drinking too much alcohol is probably not a good thing for me, but I still do it. And so they view very much this political class and government as basically keeping humans in check so that it not only do they not do damage to themselves, but more importantly, so they don't sink the whole of society. You and I can spend hours talking about whose view is better, what makes more sense. But fundamentally, they do believe that the state has to act much more aggressively to reduce the societal cost, societal burden of bad actors 
as individuals in society. It's completely opposite to how we think about things in the West. Hmm. So I leave you with those two, three things. Historically, China's been number one. Uh, you know, looking at where they are today, they are dominating in technology, in trade, in investment. And the third point is that they have a very fundamentally different view about the way mm. and the role of government. And we should just be attuned to that as opposed to reaching for for trite sort of uh, tropes about them as thinking that that's going to help us win the argument longer term. How concerned are you around a uh, Thucydides trap? Uh, this is the a phrase yeah. uh, offered by Graham Allison, um, yeah. and the prospect of a future war with China. And, and specifically, what do you think would happen if they invaded Taiwan and essentially called our, our bluff there? What, what, what do you think we would do? Well, look, there are people who are far more equipped, um, Graham Allison being one person. I can think of many other people who are in a much better position to talk about the, the nuanced aspects of this. I will just say the one point, which is that the areas that I'm focused on, debt, inflation, the economy, growth, et cetera, China right now is in the lead. Um, they, their growth rates are better. You could argue that they're coming from further behind, but there are better growth rates. They are leading in technology. As I mentioned, in some areas, they're number one. They're ahead of us by years in terms of face recognition, et cetera. Mm. And they are, I'm afraid, they are the dominant partner for economic success for many countries around the world. So what does that mean? It means that a lot of the conversation that I, I have in my economic sphere has actually and is continuing to move into more geopolitical spheres. So I don't know when or how China could deploy troops in Taiwan. I mean, is it is it as non-zero? Is it a zero probability? No, it's non-zero. What I would say is that in the things that I focus on, China is already giving us a run for our money. And we have a lot of work to do. I don't think we should count the U.S. out, never. But I do think it's important for us to have the temerity and the good judgment to say, this is what this is the hand we have right now and stop living in, in past uh, sort of glories. Mm. Well, Dembisa, it's been an education. I'm now going to go eat some sugar and drink some alcohol, <laughs> like a good American. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for all this time. Sam, it's been a real pleasure being here. I, I hope that uh, we can continue to have conversations that help move society forward. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. I look forward to the next one. For sure.